Caring for a sick or aging loved one can be an uncertain journey. Today's guest pulls back the curtain on the decade he spent caring for his elderly mother to offer a modern love story with insights and meaning for anyone who is a caregiver or anyone who has ever loved. He's Dave Iverson, this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to a Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week, we're joined by Dave Iverson, a writer, documentary film producer, and broadcast journalist whose new book is titled Winter Stars. And I just have to say, an absolutely beautiful book about caring for his elderly mom in the last decade of her life. Dave, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jim, and thank you, Wayne. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going we're gonna to dive deep into Winter Stars in a minute, but you've been a long-time storyteller working in broadcast, mm -hmm. uh, working on documentary films. What drew you to narrative in the first place? Thank you, Jim. Um, you know, I think I've always been drawn to, to storytelling in some form. I was... Um, an English major in college, you know, an old-fashioned liberal artist. I always liked writing. Um, and I come from a bit of a storytelling uh, family. My dad was actually a, an early uh, radio actor in the old days of radio. He was part of the original Lone Ranger and the original Green Hornet. Um, and so I think that was probably somewhere buried in my DNA, though it took me a while to find broadcasting. I didn't do that right away out of college. I was not a journalism major, but when I wound up working at a school for delinquent kids and, and early in my uh, life out of college, and uh, they had some radio and television equipment, and I got interested in it, went back to grad school, and then, and then my journalism career began from there. But I've, I've always been drawn to storytelling. I think as uh, David Fanning, the longtime executive producer of Frontline, once said, we're We've always loved storytelling as part of the human tradition, and whether that's gathering around the fire or, or gathering around a, a TV studio as we are today, I think we're drawn to story, and there's there's great truth in story that I think resonates with people, and that's always been deeply appealing to me. That's the that's the heartbeat of this show too. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit more about your family. Uh, you, the book obviously chronicles the last decade of your mom's life. Uh, but you also make reference and you tell us a little bit about your father and your brother and you. So let's just uh, explore that for a moment. Sure. Well, my dad grew up poor in uh, Buffalo, New York. He was the child of immigrants. His dad uh, came to Norway, to, from Norway to this country uh, as a 30-year-old. Uh, my grandmother came from, from England. Uh, my grandfather worked in the steel mills of Buffalo. And um, my dad was um, a very bright kid who did very well in school, went off to college, and then the depression hit. So he dropped out of college and um, had to be the one to support his family because his dad lost his job. And that's when he worked in radio. My mom, on the other hand, grew up in the Midwest and was the, the daughter of a school teacher and, and later school superintendent. 
Um, and they met later in life at, uh, in Michigan. Uh, my dad finally got to return to college, didn't graduate until he was in his late 20s. And they met teaching school um, in a suburban uh, middle school in Gross Point, Michigan, outside of Detroit, and um, fell in love. Um, and, uh, but were separated throughout World War II, though they did get mad, managed to get married during the war. Um, and built their life from there um, after they got out of, my dad got out of the army uh, in the Second World War. And so I grew up in sort of that idyllic, uh, you know, post-war suburban life of the 1950s um, with my two brothers. Um, and um, we had a really, you know, a really nice suburban life. Um, my folks were um, taught us, I think, early on that actually a very important thing, which we weren't the center of their lives. They were each other's center. Um, they were really a great love story, one which I wouldn't fully understand until after my dad's uh, death and I discovered some old letters of his. Uh, but I, we were a close family um, and that played a real role, I think, in my later decision uh, to care for my mom. So. Dave, talk about that decision. You were 59 years old, I believe, when you decided to move in with your mother and, and become her caregiver. And I think she was 95 at that time and beginning to experience uh, some symptoms of dementia. And th this, this was a very distinguished woman uh, on, on every count. Talk about your decision to move in with her. You had never been a caregiver. Uh, certainly not uh, for your mother. Just give us that story, Dave. Sure. Well, my father had passed away due to complications of Parkinson's disease um, some years before, 13 years before. Um, and my mom had really been, in some ways, my first lesson in caregiving and watching the way she she stood by my dad during especially the, the difficult final years of his life. And my mom and I had always been very close. Um, we had a, 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 a different kind of relationship in, in some ways and that we seemed to always kind of understand each other. My mom used to love to tell the story that when I was a little boy, I looked up at her once and said, mom, we sure like ourselves, don't we? Um, and that was kind of the nature of our relationship, um, a little smug um, perhaps but a certain ease, and, and, and that was a big part of my decision. It also came time at a, Wayne, at a time, Wayne, when I could. I was, um, as you say, in my, my late 50s, my career was well-established, I was still working full-time, but I had a lot of flexibility in my work. I was hosting a, a radio show at the public radio station in San Francisco and still making films. Uh, in fact, I was in the middle of making uh, a film about Parkinson's for the Frontline series when this decision was made. But I just felt like I could, and that if my mom needed help, then I should be the guy to do it. Um, and so I did, um, without really a lot more thought than that. And of course, I was incredibly naive. There was so much that I did not know. But sometimes I think it's useful to have a degree of naivete because otherwise we don't make those choices. And it's a choice I'm glad I made, despite all of the challenges that followed. You said there was so much you didn't know. Talk about what you didn't know and what you learned. Uh, and it was 10 years, I believe, uh, before your mother passed that, that you were living with her and her caregiver. Well, I didn't know I would get so exhausted. Um, 
I didn't know I'd get so angry. Um, I didn't know I'd be capable of that kind of anger. Um, I didn't know that I would be challenged in ways I'd never imagined or rewarded for that way in, in ways I'd never dreamed. Um, I didn't know I'd be joined by these remarkable women caregivers who were there during the week so that I could continue to work, who I learned so much from. Um, I didn't know that being a caregiver would actually prove to be more challenging than my own Parkinson's disease, which I had been diagnosed with just a few, few years before, like my father and my older brother before me. Um, and I sure didn't know when I moved in, you know, uh, that it would be such a long-term uh, experience. You know, my mom was 95. I thought this was kind of a short-term assignment that I'd given myself. I didn't know that she would live until 105. Um, so all of that became clear and became clear relatively soon. Um, and those challenges were, 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 the most challenging thing I'd ever done, but in some ways it also became the most rewarding experience of my life. Yeah, Dave, I, I read this with thinking about others who may be uh, grappling with decisions about whether or not to care for a loved one in the home or, 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 or considering other options. And it seemed to me like maybe you were thinking about those other people in similar situations. Is that, is that, a, a safe assumptions? Were you thinking about other caregivers in writing this? Yes, I primarily wanted to write this story, you know, coming back to what you were saying and we were talking about with storytelling, Jim, at the beginning, because it's the story I know. I didn't really want to write a how-to book, you know, how to be a caregiver, because I think every circumstance and every caregiving situation is different, although, of course, there are, are, there's commonality um, within that. But I think one of the interesting things about caregiving is that it's, while it's a common experience, AARP estimates that there are 53 million family caregivers right now, mostly caring for older Americans. And yet most caregivers feel alone. You know, they feel like I'm the only person doing this. I'm the only person dealing with this. And of course that's not true. But we don't talk very much about caregiving in this country. We don't talk very much about elder care. We're still in this pandemic, which killed over 200,000 residents of nursing homes and assisted living facilities, most of which happened in the early months of the pandemic. And yet, you know, we don't talk a lot about it. Congress was unable to pass the Build Back Better uh, law, which would have provided $150 billion in improving elder care in this country. So yes, part of what I hope this do is that this story, um, the way I hope any good story does, will resonate with people and that we'll begin to have a conversation in this country that I think is deeply needed about, about how we provide care for our oldest citizens, for the people we love. What does that take? It doesn't have to all look like my experience, certainly not everyone has that. Um, opportunity, nor is it correct for everyone. But I think we all want at a minimum kind, loving care. I think that's something we need to talk about in this country. And I think it's something we need to advocate for uh, because um, as you both probably know, uh, 
someone turns 65 in this country every eight seconds, right? So that means that by the end of our time here together, there'll be six or 700 more 65 year olds than there were when we started. And by this time tomorrow, there will be 16,000 more 65 year olds than there are in this moment. We have to face this. And it's something that we will all experience either as someone who provides care or who receives care. So I have a great desire to, to help prompt that conversation. And I hope this book can do that. You use the term rewarding as part of your experience living with your mother. And, and the, the book is full of moments that were rewarding to you. Maybe you could recount one or two or just give a sort of a general overview of what was rewarding being with your mother and what was so important and, and really was constitutes the love story between you and your mother. Yeah. And if I could even extend that a bit, Wayne, I would also say it became a love story between me and the women who cared for my mom with me, as well as the woman who had been my longtime partner and later my wife, uh, Lynn, because we were all, it was, it was all of that. But yes, I think that, you know, caregiving shines sort of a bright light on both your strengths and your weaknesses. In fact, I sometimes say it, it's sort of, it's like a heat-seeking missile that pierces your defenses and reveals your weaknesses. And yet through that experience, I think there are things that happen that can be deeply rewarding. Um, I'm someone who always likes to be right about things and, and doesn't mind telling you that I'm often right about things. And, and caregiving teaches you and dementia teaches you that that's a a, a almost entirely worthless <laughs> attribute. And so just getting better about certain things, learning to, to treasure moments um, precisely because they won't last, you know, that, that these moments of great love and, and intimacy, because caregiving is an intimate act, um, are so to be treasured. You're right in this nexus of, of life and death and love and and frustration. And when you can stay with that, um, there's such um, revelation really in that. In, in, I describe in the book a time, it was actually the last time that I, I took my mom to the beach. She was 102, maybe approaching 103. And I just remembered in that trip that I was not gonna correct my mom. I was not gonna, I was just gonna be there with her. And we were approaching the beach and my mom's vision was failing and she couldn't see the water. And we'd made this trip hundreds of times, probably a thousand over the years that I'd grown up. Um, and and um, as we approached the water, I could see it plainly, my mom couldn't. I said, well, mom, just tell me when you see the water. And we got just very close to the water. And then she, she broke out into this wide smile and said, I see it. And, and moments, like that, being together in that way, provide you with this wonderful life circle where you, you know, this is the person who, who gave birth to you. And now you're coming back around to sort of be with her, to see her through. And, and I think within those moments, there's, there's great opportunity for beauty and wisdom, just as I discovered so much wisdom as well from the women who surrounded me. 
We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Dave Iverson a writer, documentary filmmaker, and retired broadcast journalist whose new book, Winter Stars, gives us an intimate understanding of the challenges and rewards of being a caregiver to a loved one. You can follow Dave on Twitter at D-I-V-E-R-S-O-N-A-U-T-H-O-R. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-O-N-A-U-T-H-O-R. Dave, I, I, one of the moments in the book that really moved me was the your discovery of your father's wartime letters to your mother, uh, love letters. Um, and I, I, what I took from that was a, a, some advice to get to know our parents, not just as our parents, but as young and vital and understand that they've had this whole human experience. Was that your, was that your experience in finding those letters? It was after my dad passed away, I was in his study, which is within the back of our house, the house I grew up in in Menlo Park, the house I returned to to care for my mom in Menlo Park, California. And in the back tucked behind his duck's desk was this box of letters that I'd never seen. And in them were piled hundreds and hundreds of letters that were my dad's wartime correspondence. Um, and I'd never seen them before, but my mom had saved every letter that my dad had written during World War II over this extended period of time when they were separated um, uh, almost entirely, except for that they, they got married and a few other occasions in between. Um, and they were passionate and funny and, um, you know, just so uh, sometimes kind of risque in a way that my dad, who was this very buttoned-down professorial fellow, was just like bewildering to me. I mean, I remember reading letters like once he was it was during basic training, and he said, "Dear Adelaide, um, uh, today's activities are, are devoted to uh, activity, athletic activities. I'm devising my own games in my bunk. Would you care to join me?" <laughs> and I remember reading that and thinking. Who is this? You know? <laughs> or, or, or just this a two-line letter that that, that read, uh, "Dear Adelaide, you don't wear sheer blouses. Pity, Bill." <laughs> I mean, it was um, so. Yes, Jim. I mean, abs absolutely. Um, and but it was still it was a wonderful discovery to make. Just the same, and I loved. I would read those letters aloud to my mom um, and she'd laugh and, and um, so it was a wonderful discovery and I'm so grateful for them. I have them all right next to me here in, in uh, a file cabinet. Um, I treasure them, yeah. 
So Dave, that, that was one of many passages in the book where I was so moved, uh, it, was, I, it, just, it was emotional just reading it and I savored it and went back and read again and actually several times. Um, toward the end of her life, as her dementia was deepening, there were times when she didn't even recognize you, she could no longer read her beloved New York Times, uh, you mentioned going to the beach and she couldn't see anything until she got really close. We've asked you to read a passage and that comes from your last Christmas together. And again, this was a passage that, that Jim and I read and reread and we're hoping that you can read it for us now. Thank you. Yes, I'd be very pleased to. Yeah, my mom had... Um, the dementia became more and more challenging and that was challenging for all of us and I'd often gotten too frustrated I'd gotten angry sometimes um, I'd yelled at her sometimes because I'd get so frustrated but we came through all of that and and during the last year of her life she was very restless she always wanted to be doing something because she'd been so accomplished and so active all her life and I worried that she would go out of life, leave this life restless and, and not in any kind of peace. Uh, but on this particular night, I knew when I walked into her bedroom that, that something was different. When I walked into my mom's bedroom, I knew right away on this December night that she was in a different place. There wasn't any restlessness. She just seemed calm and quiet. She looked to be quite remarkably at peace. We sat there for a long time, just holding hands, and I felt a wave of tenderness come over me. After a while, my mom looked at me and said in a voice that was soft and only slightly slurred, you look wonderful. And I told her that she did too. And then I said, we make a good pair. She smiled and said, what a pair. And then we sat, my hand on top of hers, just sitting there, nothing more. And then she turned her head to me and said, I feel lucky. She said it with more clarity than anything I had heard her say in recent months. And I told her that I felt lucky too, lucky for all that she'd added to my life and the lives of those around her, and that I'd always remember what she had taught me. And then she said it again, I feel lucky. And so I asked her if she could tell me why. There was a long pause. And then she looked at me with eyes as bright as winter stars and said, because there's love all around. On that Christmas night, I felt something I had not experienced before that while my time with my mom was still unfinished, our journey was now complete. We had endured our bursts of anger and frustration, but over time, our deep and abiding connection had always held. And while the currents of time and age had taken us into territory we'd never imagined, we kept traveling and that journey carried us to our truest destination as mother and son. It had brought me to the bedside of someone I loved so that I could hear the deepest of all truths, that there is love all around. Dave, it's a, uh, 
it's a powerful scene and it's beautifully told. Um, that's a, that's a world changing perspective. There is love all around. And I, I got to the end of this and I, I said to Wayne, this whole book is a love, is a love letter. It's a love story. Um, that had to be incredibly transformative just for you as her son. Oh, no question. No question. Um, I think it brought me, Jim, to this place of valuing who's right in front of you and to treasure that. You know, sometimes we get caught up in wanting someone to be different, wanting, sometimes I'd want to, my mom to be who she once was or who, who I'd like her to be, but instead to remember this is who she is. This is who she is right now. And to hear the truth that that represents. I think one of the things that I didn't understand about dementia is that sometimes there's, there's truth beneath the words that are said. So that if my mom would say, for example, I went to law school, which she had not, rather than my corrector, which is what I used to do, and I, and I only realized this in some ways too late, but to now at least have the perspective that when someone says something like that, don't brush in to correct, but to, but to have less certainty and more sympathy, you know, to, to say, in this case, it would have been great if I'd said to my mom, well, why were you interested in the law, which she was? Or did that interest you because you were interested in politics and maybe wanted to run for office one day? Because she would have made a hell of a politician, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> the San Mateo County Board of Supervisors would, would never have been the same. Um, <laughs> But I guess that's it in a way, you know, less, less certainty, more sympathy, to be present to that and to act on that. One of the great lessons one of our caregivers taught me, a young woman from Nicaragua, originally Ronette Morales, was to just do things with Adelaide. She would, she would she'd open the door in the morning and say, Adelaide, let's go see some flowers and just take my mom right out of the house in the wheelchair and go. Whereas if she had wasted that and said, well, Adelaide, do you think maybe we should? Never would have happened. I'm not good at that sort of instant action, but this experience taught me to be a little better. All of those things, they're little things, you know, Jim and Wayne, um, but I, I think getting better at the little things matters. Yeah. It's such incredible advice uh, that, that you've just given, and not just obviously for someone who is taking care of an elder parent, but really for all of us in, in, in our lives, in the people in our lives. Um, so thank you, for, thank you for that message. Um, very quickly, because we only have a couple of seconds, you have become active in the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Um, tell me, tell us about that. Literally about 20 seconds, Dave. Well, it's a wonderful organization that has made a colossal difference in the lives of people with Parkinson's, which matters to me. But they're also tackling other issues, including providing caregiving support. And the royalties from this book will go to that foundation, along with two other organizations that work with people with Parkinson's and in elder care. 
And it's a cause that matters to me, and I hope others will support you. Well, the book is Winter Stars, and it is wonderful. Dave Iverson, thank you so much for being with us. That is all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit PellCenter.org, where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. Thank you.